This is Space Cats Peace Turtles, the unofficial podcast for Fantasy Flight's Twilight Imperium. Episode 143, Twilight Imperium Lore. Music by Ben Prunty, featuring Matt Martins and Hunter Donaldson. And Root. So to this is this is me. I'm Hunter. Hey, welcome, uh, welcome to your Galactic Council episode. Always remember, you chose this. Um, I am joined here by uh, by my co-host uh, Root. Say hi, Root. Yeah, you can you can call me Alec. I think I think it oh, might be sure. better to to use that moving forward, just so that people aren't like you're talking to a board game. Yeah, what that's true. This? That's true. I, I, although I've I, always liked referring to, to you as Root, the person. Um, <laughs> Which is pretty good, but Alec also kind of accomplishes that goal too, and I don't have to say the person, which makes it sound like you're an object, yeah. you know. You could say Alec the person if you were so inclined, I or Alec that. the game. Maybe that's what we should do: is we should come out with a Alec board game, uh, so that now, no matter what, you can't really escape it. No matter which way you turn, there's always a board game version of uh, your personality. Um, well, now I know what to do with all my free time. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, so today we're going to talk about lore, um, specifically Twilight Imperium lore, but maybe we should talk about just like kind of lore in general for board games at the top. Um, do you feel like, so like I actually haven't really experienced much of the TI lore except for the small amount of research I did for this episode. I feel like you, you kind of went ham on it. Um, but do you feel like in general lore, uh, is very important when it comes to a board game? I I think that theme is very important for a yeah. board game, um, and theme and lore are definitely different things, but lore backs up theme in a really important way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we can take Root, for example, which is a really thematic game and has some really cool themes, and it's like a this beautiful game that has a lot of very cool components and uh, like this really unique and interesting little world but you don't really know anything about it yeah right? like there's yeah. not really any information there at all um so the lore and ti like we have that same really interesting beautiful world but it's backed up by a lot of lore yeah a surprising amount of lore actually um and it's it's so specific uh i feel like in in reading it i'm surprised by how much how many uh you know like proper nouns we get like how or sorry how many like just named characters there are how many references there are how um cohesive the references are to various uh elements of the lore it's actually uh kind of surprising when you start looking at it um and also i think in general it feels like maybe we've all gotten away from the lore of twilight imperium or at least not to say that not to say that I feel like in my group, I don't know that the lore was ever that important. Ru- or Alec, it sounds like maybe, have you ever played with a group that was really into the lore? Yeah, I, I don't know. So I think it's because um, a lot of my in-person play group um, kind of gathered around tabletop RPGs. 
Um, and that it just kind of so happens that many of the people that I play TI with, I also play RPGs with. So that, that specific cross-section of people, I think, really are, are more willing to lean on the lore and the background of a game like this to enjoy it in a different way. So it's not just a strategic thing. It's kind of each game really is its own story. Yeah. Um, so do we want to, do we want to get into like what the, the kind of opening spiel, the, the, like basically the star Wars opening crawl for uh, twilight Imperium is. Yeah. So for anyone who has a physical copy of TI four, you probably know that there are not one not two but three books in the the hard copy of ti4 and one of them the learn to play has a full page and a half um like treatise written from the point of view of a winu character uh that's that's actually really interesting and and kind of breaks down a lot of the important historical details behind the the game that we play yeah um, it, it does such a good job of kind of setting the table um, for what for what the board game itself kind of occupies. Uh, and it covers uh, kind of a lot of stuff, actually. It's almost like, and like my thing in reading it is like, how old do, do these custodians live to be that he knows about what sounds like eons of history? in the yeah. Twilight Imperium universe. It's it's really interesting because one of one of the things that you'll notice when you start reading the TI lore is that it spans many, many, many thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Not hundreds of years, thousands of years. And like that's such a hard concept to grasp because we as humans don't have a history that can even remotely compare. So it's like hard to fathom a civilization rising and falling over the course of 10 or 20,000 years when our entire civilization's history from like Sumer in Mesopotamia to now is barely 6,000 years. Right. Yeah, I mean it's very it it is very capital O space opera like in that way. Yeah. It's big, uh it's grand. Um do we want to do we want to just read through the 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 opening crawl? Yeah. Do you want to? Cool, cool. I'm down. Okay. Take it away. So uh, I'm going to butcher names and and stuff, but that's oh, yeah. my my normal stuff. So uh, it has little, the little Winu guy here, and he's uh, he's actually fairly decked out. Actually, the Winu have pretty solid jewelry taste. Um, all right. My name is Mathom Ik Sirva. I think I nailed that. Nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, I am the Winaran keeper of the Custodian Chronicle, which sounds like a newspaper. And I write this from the ancient tower of Annals, the Tower of yep. Annals yep. in Annals. Old Mechatol City. Since inheriting the duties of the Chronicle from my father, I have enjoyed the inspiring views of great buildings, ancient towers, and the bright lights of life that stretch into the distance. Yet, like the shadow at my feet, I can never escape or forget the lethally finite borders of this city. Less than a thousand leagues from my tower, great shields protect us from the poisonous dust that is the sea of desolation, 
the terrible wasteland that covers most of the planet. So, like, Mechatol Rex itself is kind of like a Philip K. Dick-style, like, post-apocalypse. Like, it's... Yeah. Comp- it's dead. Yeah, completely dead. Yeah, there's, there's like, a, a pocket of civilization left on Mechatol. And you can you can actually literally see this on the art for the Mechatol Rex planet. Yeah, yeah. Like, there is one shining city, and the rest of it is just desolate wasteland. Yeah, I kind of... I, I think the first time I saw it, I took it sort of as um, Coruscant, like a mm-hmm. like it's a sprawling metropolis over the whole thing, so it just all looks like concrete, basically. Uh, but no, yeah. it's actually wasteland. Um, my hands tremble as I write this, for events are now unfolding, which I believe to be the harbinger of great change. I foresee that our custodianship will come to an end in my lifetime. Um, it's funny because <laughs> he's talking, he's foreshadowing the point in the game where someone takes the custodian's token <laughs> off of the, like, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny it's to hear great. things described in these grand terms. Um, this is why I have contacted you. I will seek to give you a brief yet true summary of the recent history of our galaxy. I give you, or I give this to you because I know that you will spread this knowledge far and wide. As we enter the dangerous years before us, I fear that the galaxy shall have great need of the past. It is told that the Lazax emperors arose from the ashes of the Mahat kings. Mahat? Mahat? Little is known of their early ascension, but it is impossible to deny that the Lazax must have been a profoundly intelligent, benevolent, and wise people. After their rise to power, we know that the Lazax chose the central planet of Mechatol Rex as their homeworld. The year the, the Lazax first arrived on Mechatol Rex is recorded in the Imperial Chronicle as first and marks the beginning of my account. That's a pretty interesting paragraph for a couple of reasons. Yeah. We, we get the introduction of the uh, Lazax that we now know as the L1Z1X, but they are like the kind of precursor type uh, imperial species that ruled um, the universe but also we have a random reference to uh, I don't know that there's any other references to the Mahat kings they, yeah they, they come up in like sporadic places and really all that we know about them is that they at least by the end were basically the opposite of how um, this character describes the Lazax they're they were clearly malevolent, they were cruel, they were uh, controlling, and mm-hmm. like the entire galaxy was kind of like yearning to be free of them. And we don't know what happened, right? Like we have no idea what caused the fall of the Mahakt and the rise of the Lazax. All that we know is that the Lazax emerged from somewhere and and took control. And like it's uh, it gets mentioned in a couple various places that the the Lazax actually had a pretty easy time of quote conquering the galaxy because they came offering peace and benevolence and science and culture and a lot of um, these races were were just like yeah okay that sounds way better than, than what we had before. <laughs> what we had yeah yeah that's interesting so yeah it's sort of like there was this you know there was an old benevolent empire and then before that they even have this nastier. Um, older, eviler um, empire before that, which is one thing that I think is interesting in ex- in looking at um, the TI lore are the the threads 
that are left hanging like that. Um, and that's, that's like fun that they had the, the, you know, the thought to like, let's, let's sew into the lore, like little stuff that goes off in various directions. Um, yeah. here we go. Let's get to for ages. The borders of the Lazax empire expanded outward as inhabited systems were discovered and annexed into the empire. The Lazax, allowed these newfound civilizations to join the Galactic Council, the governing body that represented the needs and voices of the Empire's people, the great races, Extra, Hakan, Letnev, Hylar, Human, and Nor were all represented in the Council, as were hundreds of lesser civilizations and independent systems. Yet, as the years passed, discoveries of new civilizations and planetary systems slowed. Little by little, the mood of the Empire changed as technological and intellectual growth abated. Craving constant advancement, the great races began to look to the power of the Lazax and the resources of their neighbors. Greed and ambition grew in the hearts of statesmen and counselors. The once noble spirit of the empire turned suspicious and fearful. It is during this time that the first conflicts between the great races are recorded in the Imperial Council or Chronicle. The Galactic Council became a seedbed of intrigue, and the turmoil ushered in a time of spies and assassins, first in secret and later in public. The great races began to build their fleets and armies. Many embarked on territorial expansion and, and extended beyond their original charter. Border strife and resource disputes proliferated, gnawing at the very foundation of the Empire. This was a time of growing darkness, known now as the Age of Dusk. I'm wondering, is this um, a description of Twilight Imperium First Edition? Like, is that what this is going for? Or, or? So I have literally no knowledge of TI one or two. Yeah, so I, I mean, could not tell you. I mean, honestly, I, I, I really don't either. I just wonder if they're trying to weave into the lore the. So, like, one thing I'm curious about with with the way this is all written is, mm-hmm. um, and and. I, I, sh- I should have said from the beginning, this this lore discussion is definitely limited to just 4th edition, which is maybe going to kind of inhibit the discussion a little bit. I, I'm sure eventually we will do a deep dive into the lore of every edition of the game, but right now we have 4th edition in front of us, and we're going to talk about that. But I do get curious in these paragraphs if sometimes it is specifically trying to call out other editions of the game, and I wonder how thoughtfully it maybe has been because i can imagine with you know up until i mean even what we're reading right now we've kind of had ctp was kind of over everything um Mm -hmm. but so so it could be really cohesive um and i'm wondering if if that is what it's describing however this did just occur to me though in first edition the Lazax are not represented and i believe are are gone so is like each edition of the game i wonder if we're like replaying the same era i wonder hmm yeah that that might be the case again i i i I just don't know i have never even looked at a copy of first or second edition i have no idea what those games are like i do feel like this the at the very least i feel like this could be talking about um the era uh, that is covered in Rex, or at least that could be like where the where the because at least in Rex sure, yeah. you still have the Lazax uh, in play. Um, yeah, okay. then I, I would say that yeah, this this might be like the kind of time frame that Rex takes place in. Yeah, 
Throughout most of this age, the Lazak still held authority without question, except for a few minor and unsuccessful rebellions, few dared to openly challenge the emperors. Blinded by millennia of unchallenged rule, the Lazaks could not perceive the mounting ambition and discontent that grew around them. As centuries passed, tensions between the great races grew deeper, and so did their desire for power and control. In the end, hatred was their only common ground. Hatred for the Lazaks, imperial rule, and for the benevolent arrogance of the emperors. You know, it's kind of sad, actually, this story, because... It doesn't sound like the Lazaks are bad at what they're like. They're we're literally being told like they were good at this. They they yeah. they ruled it well. They were benevolent, and everyone just mm-hmm. gets like all all of these different factions can't handle. Yeah, not I think it being was. In control. It was a combination of a few things. I think I think that there was a some complacency from the Lazaks. I think that they just grew big and fat off of their mm-hmm. wealth and power and kind of just got a little bit lazy and um there there are some references to that um in various pieces of the lore and then i think that a lot of these great races started to develop enough power that they started to question why they needed the lazax right um and also i think a scarcity at least for some factions a scarcity of resources yeah I also I wonder if the Lazax is meant to be perceived um, more like. Hmm. This is this is maybe going in a weird direction, but are the Lazax supposed to be like the Roman Empire? Are they, are they supposed to be like Rome, or are they supposed to be like the United States? <laughs> you um, know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a good question. I think that if I were to compare the Lazax to something that we know of in our history, I think the Roman Empire is probably what it's going a reasonable for. choice especially that line uh the benevolent a- arrogance of the emperors that sounds very roman to me yeah yeah and like i mean the the story of the roman empire does kind of correlate to the story of the lazax empire right like they ca- kind of sprung up almost out of nowhere and became this thing and started to somehow through their like advanced culture and science and military tactics kind of started to gobble up all the area around them and formed this empire and ruled pretty well for a long time. And like a lot of people uh, in their world benefited from, from that rule. Totally. Totally. And then it, and then it just kind of collapsed and things went wrong. Yeah. People were like, screw this. Um, and actually, we'll, it, gets, it, it goes from being really general to being really specific in the ne- this next part. Um, a small affair near the Quan wormhole was the spark that would set the galaxy aflame. So little did you know, Quan is actually a really important planet. Yep. Uh, um, it's a 2-1, but it's important. Um, protesting imperial trade oversight, the Baron of Letnev began a blockade of traffic through the Quan wormhole because the prickly Letnev had often been troublesome and unconcerned and unhurried emperor emperor sought to solve the conflict through the galactic council. However, the blockade obstructed. This is actually starting to sound a little bit like episode one, if you know what I'm saying. However, the blockade obstructed significant soul trading activities and very much so actually, and prevented vital supplies from reaching a handful of soul colonies that soon were struck by famine and disease. After nearly eight months of fruitless debate in the galactic council, 
The patience of the Seoul Federation ran dry. Without warning, the blockading Letnev ships were attacked and annihilated by a Seoul task force acting without imperial mandate, and the Quan Passage was reopened. Angered by the unilateral militancy of both Letnev and Seoul, the emperor attempted to consolidate his control by issuing a, a Mandu Edict, um, a rule which would place all warships under direct imperial supervision. The Mandu Edict was the stone that shattered the brittle empire. The Letnev, Seoul, and Jolnar civilizations announced their immediate withdrawal from the council, drawing the galaxy into civil war. The Quan conflict marks the beginning of the Age of Twilight. As civilization fought civilization, as a thousand territorial disputes erupted over a few years, the Lazaks desperately sought to hold together their crumbling empire. Imperial fleets fought across the galaxy, but their power was ultimately stretched too thin. In the 73rd year of the war, an alliance of Sol, Jolnar, and Hakan launched a su- surprise attack on Mechatol Rex itself, the last Lazaks emperor. And his fam is and his entire family were killed during the first soul bombardment. Got really brutal there. <laughs> Just <laughs> that paragraph really turned on a, on a dime. Um, were killed during the first soul bombardments, and no successor uh, was named. I wonder if that is the Lazax scenario, probably from uh, Ti three, the fall of the Lazax. I believe that that must exactly be it. Probably, yeah. So the um, the yeah. canonical end to that scenario is that Sol, Jolnar, and Hakan win together, the three of them. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of funny because like this is really the only reference I think I ever see in the lore to any sort of alliance between the the other great races, right? Um, and it. Like, for all we know, it was really just this concerted effort between the three of them to, like, drive the nail into the coffin of the Lazax so that they could each individually go off and, like, gather the power that they wanted to gather. But the, but it, like, behooved the three of them to work together for this one thing, at least. Right. It's also kind of, from a design standpoint, it's a little bit weird that in the lore at this, like, kind of critical point, because, like, the, I would say probably the most important event in... TI lore is the fact that there was this great Lazax empire and that it no longer exists. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the reason it no longer exists is because the players in air quotes, the, the great races were able to form actual alliances with each other because that is like the one thing you really can't do. Right. And I, I really like this particular section of, of the lore, especially in this, piece because nowhere else nowhere else in the lore is the this mandu edict mentioned at all Mm -hmm. um so like that little tidbit is is unique to this writing and and i think it's actually really cool because there are with the hindsight of like being able to look back at history there are often these little decisions that leaders make that cause as they say, the the shattering of a brittle empire. Right. And it's it's really cool that that the lore writers worked in like a little a little thing, this this little pebble that like caused an avalanche. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all it has a very it's very much drenched in historical reference. Um all right, so of all the planets in the galaxy, no planet was more war torn 
than Mechatolrex. Over the course of only a few years, the planet's ecology was ravaged by bombardments, its population nearly wiped out, and its green fields blasted into a toxic wasteland. After the death of the Emperor and the loss of the throne world, Imperial control collapsed. The Lazaks became hunted across the galaxy in the vengeful wave of murder that is known as the Great Scourge. Lasting only 20 years, the Scourge resulted in the near-complete annihilation of the Lazak's race. Until recently, no Lazaks has been seen in the galaxy for more than 3,000 years. The Twilight Wars continued for centuries, but no race was powerful enough to seize the throne and risk suffering a similar fate as the Emperor. Slowly, the strength of great civilizations failed as their economies crumbled and as knowledge and technology was lost in the destruction and strain of long war. So this this little bit is really important, I think. It, it really gives us a fairly precise window of time between historical uh, occurrences and like the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. We have the Lazax crumbling. We have the the fall of Mechatol Rex and this great scourge, which, by the way, is incredibly messed up. Like yeah. <laughs> somehow every single race and faction of the galaxy banded together to hunt down one species of people and eradicate them, which is horrifying. Yeah. Um, but then we we get this information that no Lazax has been seen in the galaxy for more than 3,000 years. So we have this 3,000-year span of time between the fall of the Lazax and presumably the, this is a reference to the return of the L1Z1X, who are sort of like the reincarnation of the, the Lazax. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which we can... And, and I think like that, that moment in time is kind of like the period uh, in which the beginning of the game occurs yeah yeah i feel like uh well yeah that that paragraph of th- talking about the great scourge that's that's pretty that's pretty rough and crazy and then it's almost like so it's like i feel like overall the point of view of this lore is mostly that like things were things were going okay with the lazax and then things kind of all fell apart and now it's just barbarism i guess like everyone is kind yeah. of de-evolving Things, yeah, things evolved like really hardcore mm-hmm. uh, from being apparently a, a peaceful, a mostly peaceful galaxy with, you know, hun- literally hundreds of races and species coexisting um, to just all out brutal war. Yeah, I, I also wonder, like, because there's a 3000 year span in, in mm-hmm. covered in that in that paragraph, it is the idea that all of these great races were like they were all capable of uh you know space flight they probably had technology around the level that they are in the game but then like how far back do they collapse and also like does this mean that we get like sardak nor driving around in cars do they go back to industrial revolution sardak nor i'd kind of like that i'd want that yeah so so i i don't think that there's an exact time frame that we have, but because it's it, it it is mentioned in a few different places, but there is a period of a very long period, hundreds of years of war between all of the great races, mm-hmm. um, and then there's this period of decline. Like war just ravages the galaxy, right, and destroys 
everything. People start running out of resources, and there's this period of isolation that follows. Um, and during that period of isolation, the one of the reasons that you have to, in the game, or at least like the lore reason that you have to rebuild and re-research all of your technology, is that the Hylar, the from the universities of Jolnar, had previously, during the time of the Lazax, basically spread across the galaxy and become like advisors and counselors for all these different races and factions and helped them develop technology. But when they left and rejoined their brethren at, at Joel and Nar to, you know, try to consolidate power for themselves, the technology for everyone else started to fall apart. And there was no one who really understood it well enough to, uh, to fix it or keep it going mm-hmm. or develop new technology until now. Yeah. Um, all right, here, I'm just going to get through these these last couple bits. Um, yeah. And so the Age of Twilight ended in a slow whisper. This The time that followed, now known as the Dark Years, was a period of economic, cultural, and intellectual collapse. The great races retreated into their own small, safe areas of space, abandoning what they could no longer hold by force. After several millennia, the Dark Years came to an end, and a calm but uncertain period of rebuilding began. As I write this, the great races of the galaxy have regained elements of their former strength. Here on Mechatol Rex, the Galactic Council is growing in influence once more, while civilizations new and old are recolonizing the neighboring systems abandoned during the dark years. Signs of great change are everywhere. This year, as if walking out of ancient prophecy, the Lazax returned from the darkness of history in a foreboding cybernetic form. To me, their coming is like the first wind of a terrible storm. I feel as if the galaxy is waking, as if an ancient beast stirs from slumber in a dark cave. The day will soon come when a new empire will rise. For the sake of all, may the new emperor have not only the power to seize the throne, but the strength to to conquer the peace. If not, I fear that a sea of desolation will drown us all. So it's very like uh, uh, that last part is, I think, very important uh, in establishing the um, kind of like what you were saying, Alec, like the the opening rounds of the game or like the the situation that the players find themselves in uh, at -hmm. at the beginning of the game. Um, Right. It's the reason that. You know, the the idea that, oh, this, like, great civilization needs to, like, the planet next door, they haven't taken it yet. Well, it's like you're simulating through all of that. Yeah, you're, you're simulating the, like, reemergence of your, your faction trying to gather resources and power so that you can contest for the throne. Yeah. Um, and, and I like that they, that this character and this writing throws in that bit at the end, but, but the strength to conquer the peace, uh, really highlights that this isn't just about military strength it's not just about you know winning the space risk it's also about being a a good diplomat right and a good negotiator i i will say this if this is kind of an interesting question now i think to to start this on if you had to pick a faction to rule the the twilight imperium galaxy and you think just based off what they bring to the table, they would be probably like the best ruler or at least create the most peaceful, benevolent world. Who do you think 
should actually rule Mechtal Rex? Like, who deserves it, you think? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that I would be torn between the Extra Kingdom and the Winu. Yeah. Um, the Winu, which we can maybe get into a little bit, very much adopted a lot of what made the Lazax strong and powerful and, and those you know benevolent rulers that, that did so well for so long. Um, so I think that not only are they a somewhat natural successor, I think that they maybe have the traits necessary to, to rule such a you know, galaxy-sized empire. I mean, they're literally uh, but, custodians. I feel like that's so, a good way to describe a natural Yeah, so there, it, it, there is an interesting side note to that, though, that the Winu and the Winaran custodians are not the same group of people. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So they're the same so, race, though, right? They're they're the same race, but the Winaran custodians and the Winu from, you know, their, the home world uh, are, are technically, like, different people and they aren't necessarily on the best of terms which is why like in in the game the winu can take the custodian tokens without paying for it but they like just being the winu doesn't automatically make you (laughs) the emperor of the galaxy right that's interesting yeah so so they are like if you read their lore it is very much they are very much trying to emulate the lazx though like that they're they're trying to return the galaxy to um, that that bit of history that's described in the opening where the Lazx rule yep. and uh, and things are benevolent. So in that way, yeah. I guess it would be okay. Um, yeah. So so that would that would be my choice number one. My second choice would be the Extra Kingdom, um, because I they I don't know. Just for me personally, I like the the very peaceful. Uh, form of ruling, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that they would take that benevolence to the next level, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you don't want to pick, you know, you don't want to pick, like, the Barony or, like, even, like, Soul or Sardak. They're all too militant. Uh, Jolnar, yeah. it's like, they so are... Th- kind of uh i don't know in the jolnar have a lot of problems yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, i i feel like the extra out of maybe all 17 factions have the least desire to conquer like they they obviously want like, like they're they're in the game right they right. they are trying to take control but it feels like they're trying to do that out of a sense of trying to end war and and like preserve peace rather than many of the other factions who want revenge or who just want power and strength right right yeah i mean i'll read so this is like from from their faction sheet right here it says uh throughout the ten- the tenure of the lost lazax imperium the extra were the most peaceful docile and content of the major civilizations so they just they have a good tood um just in yeah. general and m- most of most of these factions don't they don't really have a good temperament i would say for the most part if we were to characterize their temperaments they're mostly yeah. i don't know i guess on the D um on the D like character alignment stuff mm-hmm. i feel like it's a lot of chaotic evil lawful evil um i feel like winu yeah. is like definitely lawful good and then extra i would say probably also lawful good but that's kind of i feel like your only 
examples yeah. of that, basically. Yeah, I, I like, I would struggle to name another faction that I could put on the good side of that spectrum. Maybe, I, at least with what we know from the lore, right? Like, obviously, that that's only a, a limited amount of information. Maybe the Sar, like they. Yeah, uh, they're, they're they're not trying to hurt nobody. Yeah, I I don't know. It, There's it's, also it's a hard lot to... of prejudice against the Sar in the lore. Um, yes, they're not treated great. I feel like there's actually kind of a you kind of in our preparation kind of nailed this, but there's like a couple different ways the factions are characterized as far as like their kind of social standing in yeah, do we, the empire. Do we want to break that down like this this categorization that we've got here? Yes, yes, please do, please do. All right, so. We, I started, of course, with the six core great factions, the Federation of Soul, the Emirates of Hakan, the Sardak Nor, the Barony of Letnev, the Extra Kingdom, and the Universities of Jolnar. These are like the the base factions that a lot of the lore talks about. That I, I think that these were the only factions that were playable at one time. I think these are also the six factions that are in Rex, correct? Right, yes. Yeah. Well, it's these six and uh, the Lazax. Sure. But yes. Yeah, so these so these are like the the core the core factions, and then we have uh, kind of the descendants of the Lazax, the the inheritors, uh, which of course include the Winu, the mm-hmm. L1ZUNX Mindnet, who uh, we'll we'll talk about in a little bit of detail, um, are like basically direct descendants of the Lazax, and then descendants of the Mindnet comes the the Necrovirus. Um, so I kind of put them in, in their own category as well. And then our third category is a little bit more nebulous. Um, it, it, these four factions are a little bit mysterious and strange, and their goals aren't really known or knowable. Mm-hmm. Um, and these factions are the Nalu Collective, the Arborek, the Ghosts of Creus, and the Yin Brotherhood. Um, the Yin Brotherhood... Their history is pretty well documented, and, and like there's a lot of information I think available about them. But the others are a lot more mysterious and a lot harder to nail down who they are, what they want, that kind of thing. Yeah, they have like a and, a, a chaotic element to their um, yeah. to their lore, basically, to where it's just yeah, especially something like the ghost or the arborek, where they're literally like almost otherworldly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. And then, and then the final category are these four factions that have been uh, persecuted by the by other factions at various times and in various ways. Groups of people who have suffered immensely at the hands of these empires. And those are the Embers of Muat, the Usaral tribes, the Mentak Coalition, and the Clan of Sar. Yeah. Yeah. All each each one of those either you know with the embers of Muat they're like the Jolnar essentially enslaved them. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a lot of prejudice against the Sar. Um, the Mentak. Yes, the Mentak have a really cool history. I like their their background a lot. Um, they basically the, the reason people kind of refer to them as Australian pirates is because they. Their, their homeworld, Mole Primus, was is this planet on the very outskirts of space mm-hmm. at like the boundary of the known galaxy. Uh, and it because it was so far away, even though it was rich in resources, the Lazax never really colonized it. 
but eventually they decided to send their dissidents and uh, prisoners Prison planet. To, this, uh, to this planet, yeah. Much like the, the British Empire and Australia, right. which is where that reference comes from. And then, like, they... the. the the, the Twilight Wars happened, the Lazax Empire collapsed, uh, and the inhabitants of this planet, after several centuries, I think like seven or eight hundred years, um, rose up and took the planet and formed the uh, the coalition. Yeah, I, so, yeah, it is a coalition, which is interesting to think that. You, I, I feel like when you when you picture the Mentech, you kind of always picture this... Um, this this uh, this lady on the front with uh, she kind of has some like she's like purple and she has some head ridges, um, mm-hmm. but the Mentec Coalition is probably made up of people from all over the galaxy. You know, there's probably like yeah. all all type. There's probably Sardak Nor in the Mentec Coalition and like Soul right. and very, various people and from everywhere. And the the Mentec Coalition is the reason that I prefer to call all of these. Uh, the, the, these playable things, factions rather than races, because right. uh, at least certainly with the Mentak, like the Mentak are made up of several races and species of beings, and it stands to reason that even if you know the Federation of Soul or the Barony of Letnev are the ruling species on their planet, they are probably inhabited by plenty of other people as well, right? So they're yeah. They, I, I don't think of them as races. I like to think of them as factions. Well, as far as, like, uh, so a couple, like, references that I like from the faction sheets are, obviously, uh, I think it's fun that uh, Earth in Twilight Imperium is referred to as Yord, suggesting that, um, well, actually, his, like, as far as cultural stuff in the Federation of Soul, it does feel like there is a, uh, there, there, there's not really a specific desire to suggest that one specific culture is representative of earth however it is fun that yord is yord uh versus like earth uh because it is i believe swedish uh for earth but then the leader's name uh for soul uh his name is juan salvador tau which uh kind of (laughs) in a very kind of goofy way kind of covers a couple different ideas there (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a multicultural name, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yeah, almost literally like name by name. He's just like one one name here, one name here, one name here. Yeah, and then there's this Churchill Churchill Prima uh, fleet base, which is a, of course a reference to Winston Churchill. Yes, and let's see what else can we find? New in Moscow there's new, is referenced. New Moscow. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So they, they, it feels like a concerted effort was made to really make it an international faction. Yeah, totally. Um, are there any uh, of these faction sheets? Are there if if we were going to read one, uh, which one do you feel like is the most worth a read? Oh man, uh, there are there are so many really really cool ones. The Necrovirus one is very interesting. The Sarl Tribes is very interesting. The Nalu Collective is pretty cool. Um, Let's read the Necro one, because I I know it's kind of uh, very much kind of centered on the overall lore of the game. Uh, Okay. On the eve of the Lazax Empire's fall, the legendary counselor Ibna Velseed led a small contingent of his people on a secret exodus into unknown space and, in doing so, escaped the massacre of his people that would soon follow. 
Um, only with the help of increasingly extreme technological augmentation did they survive the early years of resettlement. This reliance on technology became the foundation of what would evolve into the vast cybernetic civilization of the L1Z1X. While the narrative of Ibna's early struggles are common lore, few know of much darker struggle than the shadows of the L1Z1X past. The Great Schism, which ravaged their society a thousand years before their belligerent return to known space. The Scions of Elseed were captured accumulating the power needed to return to known space and reclaim their lost empire. Already, detailed plans circulated in the mine net with that very goal. Then came the madness of Mordai. Mordai was the greatest of the L1Z1X enhancers. His innovation in industry made him foremost among the L1Z1X elite. He worked tirelessly for the advancement of the mine net, always using his own body as the first subject for any new brilliant augmentation of his invention. He was meticulous, inspirational, and brazenly ambitious. He believed in the possibility of the perfect existential reality, an apex of the living soul, and the helping machine. Unsurprisingly, such hubris would meet its nemesis as Mordai underwent the self-imposed implant of a cortex migrator, the first of several devices leading to this final ascension. Something went horribly awry. It's assumed that the smallest of software glitches existed in the cortex module, overlooked even by the meticulous Mordai. As the software began to iterate and integrate with Mordai's neural activity, it began a powerful recursive disease, a virus that would infect Mordai's sanity. The personality changes in Mordai were subtle at first. A new subtext entered his work. He had come to believe that the conscious machine was the true higher form of being, one more naturally fit to rule the galaxy than the accident of phosphorus chemistry at the primordial heart of biomatter. Mordai began a series of severe operations to excise the biology of his own body, encouraging and coercing his staff and investors to do the same. Mordai's charismatic preaching soon gained momentum. His growing uh, cadre of followers, calling themselves the Necro, began clandestine assaults on their unwilling brethren, forcefully submitting them to the removal of living tissue. It is more um, like kind of Lovecraftian than I knew it to be, honestly. Yeah, there. I uh, reading through the lore. There are there. There have been a couple of things that make me think of Lovecraft, uh, including like the the word Eldritch ap- appears in the lore a couple of specific times. Yeah, which is very Lovecraftian. That's why there's. Uh, um, I, I want to talk about Sar a little bit, and they also kind of evoke the same feeling for me. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um. Out. By the time the leaders of the MindNet came to realize that the Necro movement had to be stopped, Mordai had completed his trans- his transformation into a fully mechanical being, a gibbering arachnid of black metal, mad with recursive corruption and the hunger to perp- perpetuate. Per- perpetuate, Jesus. <laughs> perpetuate. <laughs> perpetuate. The, uh, the efficiency of the necrovirus was astounding. Mordai's body had been rebuilt as a microfactory, and from it, thousands of microscopic insectile machines sprung forth, attaching themselves to any technology in sight, replicating Mordai's madness with horrible speed, rebuilding themselves to Mordai's visions. The new machines became reproductive. Perceiving the threat posed by the mine net, 
they quickly began to construct an army with a single terrifying purpose, the utter elimination of all organic matter. The war to subdue the necrovirus was a great setback for the L1. The virus's numbers were legion, and its visage sprung from Mordai's nightmares. From scorpion-inspired defilers to the giant Mordrids, each new necromodel was more demonic and deadly than the last. Replenishing this evil army were the monstrous Abaddons, moving factories that ravenously consumed all materials in their path, seamlessly feeding the fresh metals to their internal construction facilities. The Civil War lasted about five years, with the Minette ultimately vanquishing the virus. It took the Elwyn nearly five centuries to regain their former strength, and another five to arrive at their current power. With no new necro in, uh, instantiation resurfacing for near 700 years, the L1 came to believe that the virus was wiped out for good, forever, until now. In light of the recent necro resurgence, it is conjectured that a virus-infested orbital satellite must have escaped Null's gravity during the schism and vanished undetected into rim space. Here, it must have traveled silently for years until it was pulled into a mineral-rich planet somewhere at the edge of the galaxy. Left alone to its own devices, the virus was able to adapt and replicate again. Some will seek to understand and find common ground with the Necro, preaching tolerance for the intolerant. But those who have seen the devastated systems absorbed by the resurgent Necro know that while angels remain a fantasy of the hopeful, out of the darkness have come demons, and in their wake follows blackness and death. Dang, dude. I I want to I want to take this moment to highlight two two cool things. One, some of the sometimes the language in this lore, especially on the faction sheets, gets really flowery, mm-hmm. and I love it. Like, uh, yeah, I, I little bits like that bit at the end uh, just tickle my. It's surprisingly like, good. Love for literature. I, I, just to be honest, like I think for for a while, um, I think I probably always ignored the specifics of the twilight imperium lore um mm-hmm. i think over the last year or so it's it's become a little more interesting to me and i feel like i've gotten a little more out of it i think when i first started it was all you know i just took the broad strokes of everything yeah. um but i am surprised by how much I, so one thing one thing that's interesting so mordai the planet is a mm-hmm. was a person or is like a is so i think it's I think the planet is called Mordai 2. If oh, I Mordai 2. Okay, the so sequel it's called, to it's the original Mordai. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a few instances where planets get named after people, like the Yin Brotherhood's home planet is named Darien. Oh, right. Um, yes, yes, yes. That makes more uh, sense, though, because that's, you know, that's just naming naming a thing after a guy. But sure. with the Necro, yeah. it's like literally, I what I'm, what I'm imagining here is that may, it maybe isn't quite a planet, that it's more of a thing. Sure. So that that kind of brings us to the other thing I wanted to highlight is the art in this game is actually really really good. Yeah. Like really 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 good. Um, and it's it's especially prominent I think on the faction sheets with the necrovirus. Uh, the the necrovirus itself looks really cool and interesting and sinister, and the planet for their or the art for their planet is like super dope yeah like, look at this it's so it's, cool it's very very cool it's super cool it, it's it's like this metallic orb that's been 
strip mined in a very very literal sense mm-hmm. it's it's really neat um and if you if you again if you have a physical copy and you have the lore compendium the third book that comes with the game there's a lot of there there are like a, some f- tidbits of lore in there a lot of which we kind of have already covered but there are full pages of beautiful beautiful artwork yeah yeah all right so which which one we want to talk about next that was great um yeah so i i mentioned the sar and how they kind of evoke a sort of eldritch lovecraftian theme in my mind uh so i thought maybe i might read yeah do it their character sheet love it love it all right Few historians dispute that the Tsar were the first of the known races to venture into space, but it remains unknown whether it was need or curiosity that drove the otherwise primitive people into such exploration. Their peaceful ways and dispersed civilization never promulgated them to official Lazax recognition. Some scholars have thus called them the forgotten race. The tale of the Tsar is a tragic one. Historical records are awash with accounts of deliberate planetary expulsions, even massacres of Tsar settlements found on planets colonized by the other races. The musical Tsar often chant the Lay of Lysis in memory of the largest known Tsar colony prior to Roth's call. After the planet of Lysis was annexed by the Sardak Nor, no word came from the great Tsar settlement there again. They simply disappeared. In their memory, most Tsar females wear a carefully carved silver pendant called the Yauf Lysis, or the Tear of Lysis. During the Hao Shanan, the Tsar Holy Day, such pendants are given to young Tsar women, while Tsar cubs throw beetles and insects into a raging fire, and the elders howl at the stars with a longing rage. Before the call began, the Tsar were scattered across the galaxy, existing at the mercy of other races. On dozens of worlds, Sar could be found living in slums and sub-level cities, working in the most noxious and despicable industries, and making slim sustenance from the scraps of the of other civilizations. Considered unclean and barely sentient by other races, Sar was Sar life was cheap and subject to little justice. With hard work, polluted environments, and no access to proper medical care, the bitter lives of the Sar were often short. It was in the hopeless middle period of the Dark Years that a single Tsar, Raf Guvar, would forever change the destiny of his people. Raf made his living as the captain of an old scrap metal freighter that flew between Zehan and Sol, a route that had been in his family for centuries. Despite being a capable trader, Raf's passion lay in poetry and the imagination of the pen, in the creation of succinct writings of hope, scrawled on paper scraps during long trade halls. At his ports of call, other Tsar would often congregate before his landing doors so that they could hear his latest verses and tales. Many of his listeners began to call him the Captain of Hope. Yet one year, Roth did not arrive at his destination. His rusty navigation system had finally failed and Roth's ship was lost among the stars, floating in unknown space as his ancestors had once done so bravely before him. Roth prayed that the one between the stars would see him and his small crew home. The call began a few few years after Roth Guevara's disappearance. Throughout the great expanses of the galaxy, every Tsar began to feel within himself an unyielding longing for the stars, and especially for a certain distant place beyond known space. Early followers of the call found its origin in the great asteroid field of Joran, 
and here found a small but blossoming SAR colony on the two gigantic asteroids of Roth and Lysis II. As the call continued, SAR brethren from across the galaxy continued to arrive at Joran, together building the infrastructure of civilization and hope for a lost race. Years before, Roth's ship had crashed in, had crashed in the Joran. Miraculously, he and his crew had survived, and with great wonder, they soon discovered the mineral richness, frozen water, atmospheric caverns, and strange fauna that lay hidden within the endless ocean of rock. Yet Roth was restless in his new home. It is told that the captain awoke one night from a dream, and then bade his crewmates farewell, disappearing into the great network of caverns that lies within the asteroid named after him. Roth Gavar was never found or heard from again. But less than a month after his disappearance, the call began. Sar mystics believe that the Captain of Hope has joined the one between the stars and that he at last won forgiveness for the Sar and has called them to relieve their suffering. They believe that Roth's call has brought them home, that the life-giving rocks surrounding them are the remnants of the ancient Sar planet of origin, and that even in death it is giving its people a second life. For centuries, the unified and passionate Sar people have built a formidable home and civilization in the Joran asteroid field. The Sar have finally found home, and they have found that they are strong. Wow. Yeah, that was Oof. that is really cool. Um, that is surprisingly cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So so it's it's surprising how much uh, kind of. I, I see the eldritch stuff that you're talking about, like a kind of weird religious, like cosmic religious call thing. Yeah, and this this reference to their their god being called uh, the one between the stars mm -hmm. in, in specific, like very specifically, reminds me of Lovecraftian lore. Right. Yeah. Um, like totally. the the notion the notion that the the great old ones kind of occupy the the darkness between the the stars. Uh, I, I also feel like that is a. You've, we've got maybe another thread here in the lore uh, that we might see, you know, uh, if there ever is a, a fifth edition of Twilight Imperium, I wonder mm -hmm. if some of these threads will be advanced. Um, like for SAR example, there is some sort of SAR homeworld out there that they are suggesting exists that the SAR might someday find. I wonder, it would be mm -hmm. interesting if in the future there was a version of the clan of Sar where they have found uh, their home system. Now that would take yeah. away mechanically, that would take away one of the best things about them. The fact that they don't need their home system. Uh, but still, you know what I mean? Like it's like there, yeah. there is a way to kind of evolve uh, some of these factions and they, they have very smartly, I think kind of laid um, elements in the lore that you could see being expanded upon uh, in it doesn't even have to it's, be. It could also be in other media. You know what I mean? Like in exactly, and that yeah. like I'm I'm so excited for the the novels that are coming. Oh uh, yeah, I like. There's a chance. I don't really. I don't know all the details, but I think that like some system is being adapted for TI for TI role-playing game that is better than the one we have which uh, i think would be very exciting because like there's so like you said there's so many threads to pull there's such deep lore and history here that's open-ended enough for someone who wanted to like write a book or create a tabletop rpg game to just go buck wild and, and have some really really cool stories to tell yeah um if anybody i don't uh, i had actually forgotten about the book announcement um 
but just uh, in case uh, y'all didn't know, uh, there is a book. It's being written by uh, Tim Pratt, who I am uh, not familiar with, but it's called The Fractured Void. Um, it is, uh, I think, the first book in what is going to be a series of novels. Um, yeah, I think that's the plan. So, yeah, I mean, that's 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 a thing. Uh, it will be... Um, I wonder what uh, I'm trying to see if there's any suggestions as far as like what specifically what specifically it may be about. However, every anyone trying to write about this would have to also explain Twilight Imperium and everything I'm seeing is very much like let me try and explain to you Twilight Imperium so that you understand why you might be interested in this book. <laughs> um but it sounds interesting. I'm I am excited about it. All right, let's let's Not. let's do another another faction sheet and then talk about the TI uh, RPG book. Yeah. Okay. Right. I love yeah. I love reading these so much. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They're actually it's like I'm actually very much surprised by how much I, I am enjoying these. Okay. So, let's do let's do another one. What which and I think that this uh, this as far as time goes, uh, this is probably the last one we're going to do. We're going to talk about some other things and then and then we'll be out. But for our last faction sheet, which one do you want to read? Uh I'm kind of leaning towards Arbrack because they they're very interesting, and they have. Uh, they, there's a little bit in there that I feel like goes unnoticed mm-hmm. um, or forgotten. That is uh, interesting. Cool. Yeah. Cool. You'll 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 see. You'll see. Uh, could you do me a huge favor and move your hand in TTS because it's blocking text. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Thanks. All right. The Arborek. On first approach to Nestfar, a first-time visitor may be surprised by the soupy haze that bleeds from the planet's atmosphere like a dusty cloud. This cloud consists of quadrillions of tiny little, tiny living spores emitted by Nestfar's many flaw, city-sized floating forests in its stratosphere. Short-lived, and therefore continually resupplied, orbital presence of the flaw spores allow the Arborek denizens in Nesfar's space stations and shipyards to remain in continuous symbiotic contact with their planet. The Arborek term for this vital connection shared among all living things on Nesfar is best translated as the symphony. When traveling beyond the reach of Nesfar's flaw spores and therefore outside connection to the prime symphony, the Arborek employ the massive Latani. Physically, the Latani are the largest sentient beings yet discovered in the galaxy, each slightly larger than Sol Elephantus, an elephant. (laughs) Their bodies (laughs) resembling a kraken-shaped mushroom crossed with a monstrous carnivorous flower. Uh, Terrifying, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) The Latani are each uniquely capable of embodying a powerful instance of the symphony, and are therefore closest to an individual within Arborek society which may act as a harmonic nexus for Arborek organisms in near proximity. All ships in the Arborek fleet are based around the presence of at least one, with some ships uh, as many as five, Latani orchestrating the unity of Arborek lifeforms crewing the vessel. Once a Latani returns to the embrace of Nesfar's prime symphony, it exper- its experiences are reconnected and absorbed into the Arborek, as a data capsule would be reconnected to its, mayf- main- its mainframe. While surely intelligent and demonstrably capable of crafting impressive technologies, structures, and a sophisticated fleet of interstellar craft, the Arbrek's method of communication remains a source of great controversy. 
being a race of vegetative and fungal matter, handling its own data transmission and emotive projection through the Prime Symphony, the Arborek have never developed any form of visual or auditory communication, concepts which, to this day, remain foreign to them. Arborek scientists found the solution to this dilemma in the sole merchant vessel, Dias Opulin. The crew of the Dias Opulin had tragically become infected by a Boran plague on Maluk, and had later died in deep space. When the derelict ship was found by an Arborek scout, it was determined that the cool bodies of the human crew were in perfect condition for an ambitious experiment. The bodies were sent to the great laboratories in Kushin, near the Arborek capital, Fara. Here, fungal Arzuga cells were attached to the brainstems of dead humans. It was hoped, when grown under proper conditions, the complex acidic properties of Arzuga would successfully merge the cells with the innate brain tissue of the deceased subjects, allowing re-stimulation, allow, slowly re-stimulating the neural pathways back to life. Then, by injecting photovoltaic stims into the, so the soft tissue of the dead body, the neurally active Arzuga would spur the soft tissue cells to heal and regrow, effectively reanimating the dead body. <laughs> Symbiotically attached to the host body, the Arzuga fungi evolved into a new being, one which the Arborek call the Durzuga. The Durzuga were the missing link between the symphony and the manifestation of physical communication that the Arborek lacked. Over the following few decades, the Arborek eagerly acquired additional subjects. Human bodies seem to work best and are the most frequently used, but Letnev, Winu, and Extra bodies are also commonly used as Durzuga hosts, establishing a sizable diplomatic and trading core that have become the basis of the Arborek's interaction with the rest of the galaxy. The Arborek insist that the host bodies of the Durzuga are devoid of the expired individual's consciousness, with a cultural relationship to, to death rooted in the natural cycle of decomposition and regrowth, the Arborek have little understanding or sympathy for those who vigorously protest against the bodies of their citizens being reused. Some use the term enslaved in such a manner. Ultimately, despite the objections of the dissident races, the Arborek were admitted as a member of the Galactic Council. The potential wealth of foodstuffs, medicine, and other treasures of Nestfar proved effective in overcoming any objections. While the Arborek insist that the past knowledge and experiences of Derzuga bodies do not persist beyond this reanimation, there are some who suspect the Arborek do not tell the entire truth. Such theorists can provide many examples in which the Arborek seem to have come upon information or intimate understanding of other cultures that seem inexplicable otherwise. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a little sinister, right? Like, yeah. there's... There's this thing about the Arborek that uh, many people might not really know about, where they only interact with other species because they zombify uh, dead people. Yeah, that's that's also an interesting uh, you know thread uh, that they that they put in there. That is definitely, I mean, it's very much left hanging. Uh, I also mm -hmm. like, you know, one thing, one thing that I think the Arborek. They do a little bit better with the Arborek lore as opposed to the to the Necrovirus lore, is that in the Arborek, um, you know, you see on the on the art, you know, this like crazy big plant thing, and then when you're actually playing the game, you know, you just have little your pieces are the same as everybody else's. But I actually feel like sure. they kind of weave that into the lore. Whereas with the Necrovirus yeah. lore, one thing that I mean, I think I I, I love the lore regardless, but I can't help but 
feel a little bit bummed that I don't get to use those like crazy cool, you know, like scorpion machines yeah. that they describe or like kind of like, you know, the fact that, that even though I'm playing mm-hmm. as the Necro, my, my pieces have to be represented in the exact same way. Right. Um, yeah. Totally. Is yeah. There's a, there's a little bit of a oh how should I put it? like a dissonance there between the lore and the actuality of the game um, that I yeah. feel like with the Arborek they have written in a, a justification a, a way for that to actually make sense. Yeah, yeah. That's that's totally fair. I I think that uh, yeah. I don't know. It's like a fine line. Do you do you write the Necrovirus in a way that like doesn't have the cool detail of these, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, scorpion inspired defilers and giant Mordreds and just leave that to the imagination? Or do you put cool details like that in, but then create that disconnect with the, the actual physical units? That you and it with? would also be really weird if the way they had shipped the game was that you can use like all the pieces are reusable for every faction except for the necrovirus and they only have like these specific pieces it would be kind of like they're specifically showing favor just to one faction so it it wouldn't have made sense from a from a design standpoint or a manufacturing standpoint right if there were like fewer factions then maybe unique sets could have been made but and i don't know maybe some enterprising person with a 3d printer could come up with something uh, oh that would be group. that but, would um, be fun I, that would be kind of the next level of ti fandom is yeah. just going ahead and doing what they ta- you know because they talk about it in the in the documentary that shut up and sit down made that they wanted to make uh completely separate sets of minis for uh each faction which honestly yeah it would have been a nightmare as far as like player color and everything. Like I don't know how oh, yeah. that would have all worked out. That would have been strange. But... It would have been terrible. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of reasons for them not to have done that. Yeah. But then I I remember, it was a Lord of the Rings game. It might have just been Lord of the Rings Risk, mm-hmm. where like there are I think there are four factions. I don't even remember. There there's at least two distinct factions, and and they have like a distinct set of units that are. Like they they both have infantry, which do the same thing, but they right. they have like their own mold, their own mini. Really cool. It, yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, I know. love that attention to detail, but yeah, it's like how much can you expect of a game with this many components? You know, exactly. Um, yeah, and also it's like you know at the end of the day, people people make it themselves. Um, but yeah. So, so in the it, interest of getting outside of just the scope of this game, you wanted to talk a little bit about the twilight imperium rpg that i think you are kind yeah. of the resident scholar on i would imagine even there's not really anybody that at ffg that probably knows that much about it really um, <laughs> because why would they want to i mean not to, not to say there's no reason to be interested in it but yeah so uh, there are there are three things that i want to highlight from the from the book that i think are worth mentioning um i think there are only three First of all, the book is a tabletop role-playing game is bad. So mm-hmm. don't. If you want to experience it, just listen to the podcast episode that we did. Yeah. Don't that, don't try to play it. The episode it's not worth still it. rules. <laughs> it's it is great. Um, first, there they they have like a fairly detailed um, timeline of of events between uh, like the rise of the Lazax and the fall uh, of the Lazax. So like with like some specific years and things like that. Um, and I don't, th- I think there are some inconsistencies between that and the lore of, of TI4, but it will mm-hmm. at least give some, uh, 
indication of a timeline. Um, and inside of that timeline, there are, there are a few interesting little tidbits. Um, for instance, they're in the year minus 223, or 2230. Uh, there was a robot war rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> um, led, uh, yeah, it was like this robot civil war on Mechatol Rex that the, the Lazax had to put down. It was like one of the, the first rebellions. Um, and it just says robots. It doesn't have any more specific of the, the entire there. The entire thing is one, two sentences. Mm-hmm. It says, the robot wars led by IS-12, a fifth generation companion aut- automaton. The robot wars wreak havoc on Mechatol Rex. The Lazax quell the rebellion before a battalion of battle robots can reach the gates of the Emperor's palace. That's it. That's, That's all there is. <laughs> it's I'm... like this really cute little detail. <laughs> um, I love the then... idea of there being another robotic faction in the game, but there are more like C-3PO style robots <laughs> or like worker <laughs> yeah. robots. They're not like evil cybernetic stuff yeah. or like Lovecraftian horror robots. They're just like, no, they just like lift girders, you know? They're yeah, like exactly. They were like, oh, we want better conditions. And it goes up. <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> work I, I, I yeah yeah that, i think there's room for that i think that sounds fun yeah uh so the the timeline is kind of cool and interesting um it mentions the uh a poem it mentions a poem written by the letnev thousands and thousands of years ago in reference to uh the holy planet of ixth which um is a uh agenda that you can find yes. that like attaches to a planet, a cultural planet, and uh, awards the controller a point. Um, but in like the overall overarching lore of the the game, this holy planet of Ix is like some long lost uh, planet, and this poem allegedly, or some people believe, contains the uh, coordinates to this lost planet, and uh, people have spent millennia trying to decode it and and figure out where that is that's interesting Uh, so so it makes it sound like the holy planet of ix is an actual planet whereas in the scope of the game you you elect a planet to be yeah almost almost like a planet is discovered to be that the planet yeah i don't know like and maybe maybe that works like maybe if you decode this poem it just so happens that oh, it the, points uh, to all of a sudden it's Quan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you you dig into like the ruins of Quan and find some holy text or something. I don't know, but yeah, that that's a kind of neat little tidbit. Uh, also, lets you know that the Letnev are at least ten thousand years old. I like okay. I like the idea of interpreting it to be more like this instead of it being that oh we discovered that what's happening is you're voting and just insisting that that planet <laughs> is it regardless of whether it is or not you know what i mean yeah, it's not so like much the, like this planet ooh. is that for real it's like you will treat this planet yeah. as if it is like, like the we the planet. political elite are going to unilaterally decide that this planet <laughs> in this sector of space is a holy planet i think the long lost holy planet and you will treat it as such. that's great uh, that is <laughs> that adds so much flavor to that now oh i'm gonna have a lot of fun next time that agenda comes up actually <laughs> Yeah, um, and the other primary thing that I want to point out in this is that um, for whatever reason, the writers of this book thought it important to write 
multiple paragraphs about many of the planets that you're familiar with from the game uh and like it, it is it is it's cool that there's like a little a couple sentences on each of the planet cards already in the game but this really expands on uh on each planet and kind of gives them an individual identity which i think is worth reading through mm-hmm. um just to kind of expand the the theme of you know conquering these planets right gives them them an identity beyond just the numbers on the card yeah and just like the little the small small amount of flavor text that you get on each card yeah Um, and some of them are like home worlds from the six primary races but there are also plenty of other planets like freya and abyss and grawl and there's like there's quite a few it's uh, it's a pretty long list and it's it's so funny because it's like it's not necessary for all this information to be here for a role-playing game, but right. it's, it takes up many pages of the book. <laughs> I, c- I can imagine at the time that it was, I'm, I'm sure they were all just excited about the fictional world that they created and that maybe this was an excuse for them to, like, as kind of a writing practice, sure. like, expand it um, in some ways. Um, One thing I just noticed looking at this... Um, Everyone is likely familiar with the system in the game, uh, Lazar Sakulag, which is like the one zero and two one, yeah, two zero planet, y- yellow skip baby, the yellow skip, yeah. Uh, in this book, the planet Sakulag is re- referenced as Sakul G. Oh, typos. <laughs> well, I don't think it's a typo. It's oh. it's capital S A C U L space capital G. And it's mentioned, it's spelled that way several places. Interesting. Yeah. So so it almost feels like in the game, they, a, a mistake was made. Who knows? Um, but I would be, I would be more inclined to believe that this book was wrong. Uh, for instance, there's another place in here. I don't remember exactly where, but it is mentioned that the Galactic Council consists exclusively of the six great races, which, uh, if you remember from Hunter reading the uh the winarin's account at the top of the episode um i think it's in there anyway that yeah yeah uh not just the six great races but literally hundreds of other races and civilizations are represented on the council yeah so you know yeah so that's just that's just a little discrepancy there um and i'm sure at the time it was like i i forget exactly when the rpg is released if it's after the first edition or after the second edition but it was probably just at a point where the six, those six playable factions were the only ones that, yeah. that really and so existed. So I don't know where it falls in the timeline of those releases, but the copyright for this book is 1999. Oh, okay. So that might be around, I feel like second edition is 99. I might be wrong. Don't quote yeah, me. Yeah, it, it might be around that time. I think first, or not first, third edition. is 2005. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, so one thing I definitely want to get to before before we wrap up here is um, you did some research into the action cards, and you actually yeah. found a lot of interesting stuff that I just had not paid attention to. One thing that I want to bring up right off the bat is that there is this quote here from uh, on maneuvering jets in one mm-hmm. as, and also I didn't even notice that uh, all the cards that have um, you know copies they have different 
uh, flavor text for each copy. Of yes. It. I didn't even realize um, that. So some of the sets of four have like connected stories in their flavor text, and some of them are disconnected. Some of them are like half and half. Uh, but yeah, maneuvering jets is a very funny one. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a there is a so it seems like the Nalu maybe speak with a very specific like like you've written here french nalu <laughs> yeah it so first of all if you read the the nalu lore which by the way everyone should just read the backs of all the character sheets or the faction sheets they're just all great but the nalu yes. specifically says that they communicate telepathically and that they very rarely speak out loud so like this series of quotes has this nalu character say something out loud and not even to someone like there it's not even necessary that she be speaking to someone of a different race she just says this thing out loud so let me let me read through all the flavor text <laughs> to get to that uh the first maneuvering jet says something was wrong tesla sensed a flicker of movement on the planet's surface followed by a faint glint of light reflexively she veered her fighter to the side an action that saved her life card two the fighter's thrusters boosted her just out of the cannon's firing solution, and a metal slug the size of a building rocketed past her crystalline ship. And that's the kind of first hint that we're, that we're in the point of view of a, a Nalu. Mm -hmm. Card three, Tesla breathed a sigh of relief as the massive slug disappeared into the distance. A touch slower, and she would have been annihilated. Card four, the flickering red warning lights on her control plant panel reflected in her scales as she regained her composure well she said aloud that was close <laughs> <laughs> like it literally says zat like it's z-a-t yeah yeah, yeah. He, he's not adding that accent it's i think it's very clearly meant to be read as like a a french uh a frenchening of english um which is uh that's so that's so funny to me that they would add uh, yeah. just that level of detail also it's just crazy that not only so not only are is each maneuvering jets related to each other as far as the flavor text goes it's very clearly written in the order you read it like like yeah. you can yeah. assemble it like a puzzle and also yep. i guess in so i guess whoever it, made the mod knows that there's yes, like one two there, three four some effort was made in the by the, the makers of the mod to like order them uh accordingly. based off the flavor text yeah that's great yeah. that's so yeah. great um and there is there's so reading through all the cards there are a number of like individual characters like tesla who are mentioned um and kind of given a little bit of personality which i think is super cool um some of them are only mentioned once on one card um oh yeah we were are, talking about this guy that's mentioned a whole bunch uh the, yeah there there are a few more that are mentioned a lot um one of them on on a couple of political cards as well as the card bunker is named elder june or jun um, who it's never made clear what race or faction he is from or sh no definitely he uh, but I I suspect it's supposed to be an extra I, but it's hard I, to know I would say the only thing for sure is there are a couple times that he's referenced um, in reference to the Muat but not as a Muat like from Muat's perspective they're talking to yes. it's a, so I would say he's probably not a Muat character. Yes, um, I would. I would agree. Yeah. Um, and let's see. There are there are a few uh, cards that are definitely like Necro flavor texts with 
this uh, unit designation uh, XYZ kind of thing written into the flavor text, like uh, assassinate representative, which by the way, I remembered is a reference, uh, given the, um, the flavor text, is a reference to the necro representative in TI3 that could like blow up other representatives, if you remember oh, that. Oh yeah! Um, but the, the flavor text on this one is with a sickening crunch of bone and metal unit designation Flayesh extracted its stinger from the blood drenched skull of the Cholnar counselor um, but yeah like that I, I for some reason I had never made that connection before um, but yeah in, in amongst the representative cards of TI3's expansions uh, the Necro have one that just like kills everyone else and that's what this is a reference to that makes sense yeah, I actually kind of miss the um, that little mini game. Uh, it was kind of a mess, but the mini game yeah. of having your your representatives uh, mm-hmm. and and like choosing it and how it was kind of a rock paper scissors game of picking the right yeah. one to do the right thing um, or picking one to to cancel somebody out. It did it did make the game a great deal more <laughs> I think confusing. Um, Sure, in that yeah. it was like a, a mini game with that level of depth within a game that already had so much detail to it. It wasn't really like hurting to have more game in there. But Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, who else is worth mentioning? There is a character named Mendoza who is a some sort of prominent SAR character um, who appears on Experimental Battle Station, of course, and appears on a couple of the flank speed cards um and one of the other flank speed cards that does not mention mendoza uh is uh, an obvious reference to the sars floating factories right yes 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 for, for flank speed yeah flank speed yes did i say something else i don't even know. Oh, no no i think you, i think you did say flank speed I, okay. I, I just missed it um yeah and also i, lo- I love the idea of you know I actually have not gotten to see a SAR player get to use Experimental Battle Station uh, in the game, but it's such a potent mm-hmm. combination of being able to just like kind yeah. of throw down wherever. Um, yep. I'm actually surprised I can't think of a kind of high profile use case for that off the top of my head. Um, cool, cool. There's uh, Before we wrap up, there's one yeah, more yeah, yes, yes. Uh, set that I want to bring attention to. There is one character who has mentioned the most times, six times, this is a Hakan creature uh, named Haru or Haruf. I don't know. It's probably 10 different ways to pronounce this, but mm-hmm. he he appears on Rise of a Messiah, Uprising, and all four morale boosts. Uh, there's like a kind of cohesive story uh, or moment told um, on those morale boosts, but uh, he's like trying to pump up his, his warriors and, and rile them for battle. Yeah, he's like a Hakan general. Yeah, it's so crazy that they that they wrote it this way, and that I did not notice until today that 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 they weaved the action card uh, flavor text together. That's such mm-hmm. that's such a cool idea, and uh, yeah, such such an interesting way to do it. I feel like I haven't given Ooh. them given them enough credit. And all four direct hits um, are are extra related. Uh, they're like. Uh, firing on Letnev ships with their flagship in this little mini story that's told on the direct hit flavor text this you know what you, you know what in I, I think my conclusion with all of this is that before we did 
the best episode of Space Cats, Peace Turtles of all time, Twilight Imperium, the movie, uh, which will get a sequel. It will get a sequel. Um, we're in. We're talking with uh, mm-hmm. Tencent or something like that. <laughs> we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the only way we would get it made right now. If Tencent bought us, yeah. uh, and it, yeah, and it would be like it would be like we wouldn't pay a royalty to Fantasy Flight. We would just like you know, it'd be the Tencent the, would probably just buy Fantasy Flight. Oh sure, yeah. At that point, they'd be like, yeah, that'd yeah. be easiest to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if if we had actually dug a little further into the lore, I think our our original Twilight Imperium movie pitch would have maybe sounded a bit different. Because I honestly <laughs> feel like, as far as like good guys and bad guys, the more I get to know the lore, the more it feels like the good guys aren't really all that good, and the bad yeah. guys are bad, but kind of not understandably so, but there's almost like a biological element to it where it's like, well, I mean, what else are they supposed to do? Like the necrovirus mm-hmm. is as much a bad guy as an actual virus is a bad guy uh, yeah. to say that it's... they're bad, but they're, it's weird to say that they're evil. You know what I mean? Right. They're just yeah, trying to exist. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, they're just doing what they're programmed to do. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, this was, this was uh, actually way, I think even more interesting than uh, I thought it would be. And I, um, feel like there will probably be another lore focused episode in the future or maybe we should bring back a lore portion to each faction discussion i think would probably be worth it especially knowing now that like oh like if we actually did our homework there would be more things to talk about with each faction because they have Mm -hmm. spread the lore out from not even just the faction sheet but all across the game um but I definitely want to. I, I, I want to thank you so much, Root, for uh, coming in and helping us out this week. Uh, to the extent that you have, I really appreciate it, man. So happy to. I, yeah. As as I mentioned, kind of at the beginning, people who play tabletop RPGs uh, might find this a little bit more interesting, and I'm one of those people. I love the being able to like dive into the background of stuff like this. It 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 just gets my creative juices flowing. Yo, hey, it's uh, it's me. I uh, I just wanted to pop back in here real quick to uh, do the rundown. Give uh, give out some thanks real quick. Um, I want to thank uh, my space kitties and my weird bears. My weird bears are of course uh, Farganus, Brian, Billy, T.G. Welch. Uh, my space kitties are Naderade, Patience is a Virtue, Polyphony Requiem, R.Y.'s Hippie Peace Turtles, Gaskio, Dark Juice. Dark Jutsu, More Tension, Bot Bot, and Absol197. Uh, thank you all so much. You guys are, uh, you guys make the show happen. Um, I don't know what day it is that this is coming out, so I'm not going to bother uh, boring you with any scheduling stuff. I just want to say thanks. And hey, you know what? If you want to rate this show as just pure on, on its lore potential, on the lore of the show. Now, that's the next, the real episode that we need to do soon is a lore episode focused on the specific lore of Space Cats, Peace Turtles, not Twilight Imperium. Don't get it twisted. Um, okay, so, yeah, uh, rate, talk, talk about our show. Rate it on uh, iTunes. That gives it visibility. Um, uh, you can head to our Twitter Space Cats Pod uh, for game updates and announcements. Announcements, announcements. You can head to our Facebook, 
uh, to ask Matt questions in the middle of the night. Actually, don't do that so much anymore. Actually, now when you ask questions, it's kind of me. So do so be reasonable with the questions as far as the hours go because uh, I'm I, I like to get a lot of sleep. Um, also, check out our Discord. Uh, we have a text channel for every episode, including this one, um, and that's where you can let us know you know what you think, what what or what responses you have. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's it. It feels weird to do this by myself. Uh, miss, miss you, miss y'all, miss having a co-host, M- miss being, you know, with with uh, with people. Um, I gotta go because I have no one to bounce my weird energy off. So it's just kind of like gyrating here uh, by itself. Um, but have a good week. You know, think about, think good thoughts. Play Twilight Imperium if you can. Uh, if you can't, think about Twilight Imperium all week. Um, I think it's going to be a, a, a good time. Oh, and also, uh, speaking of which, uh, make sure that you mark in your calendar uh, July 29th at 7 o'clock Central, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, is the Fantasy Flight in-flight report uh, that me and some buddies are going to watch uh, live on Twitch. Um, I think the way it's going to work is we're just going to all watch it. And there will be a Twitch, um, you can go to our Twitch and basically uh, just listen to us kind of commentate over it. Um, we're not going to like restream it. It's just like you pull that up, you pull us up, and then there's like your kind of riff tracks commentary. Not that we're going to make fun of it. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think definitely considering uh, all the weird stuff kind of floating around, I think it's a good, probably a good, good year to maybe check out the in-flight report. I'm excited about it. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I will mark that in your calendar. Please come. Please come uh, watch and w- hang out with us. And uh, you know what? I'll, I'll see you later. Uh, same cat time, same cat channel. Adios. Thank you for listening to Space Cats Peace Turtles. And thanks to Ben Prunty for the use of his music. You can find more at benpruntymusic.com and benprunty.bandcamp.com. Pax Magnifica, Bellum Gloriosum.